Cheers, ladies and gentlemen. Cheers. Cheers. You couldn't listen to a recording of it and get the same experience. You had to see it in person to feel the force to see it from someone that has dedicated their life to that instrument. Um, that was pretty special. Hello, and welcome to Pour Me a Mozart. My name is Asia, and I'm here with Min Lee. And it is the middle of COVID-19 quarantine. So we will be not drinking to the same thing. We will be listening to the same things and drinking to different things. I don't think either of us knows what we're drinking yet. No, not yet. Not yet. So hi, thank you for being here and joining me in this podcast. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. Like you said, we're in the middle of the COVID-19 quarantine. So anytime like anybody invites me to like a virtual hangout, I'm just like, yes, finally, like some human interaction. So I'm happy to be here. Oh, great. Let's start by talking about you. Um, what do you do for a living? Oh man, talking about me, this is my least favorite <laughs> subject. I thought um, I prepared you for this. <laughs> uh, so professionally right now my full-time job is with a intergovernmental organization called the Minneapolis Youth Coordinating Board. I am their communications associate. It's a very small government group and this group came together I think in 1985 when the city of Minneapolis was beginning to realize um, when it came to sort of youth and family work and policy, they realized, okay, we're doing this, but so is the county and so is the park district. And so they're like, hey, what if we don't double up, triple up waste resources? So they formed this group to sort of begin coordinating what governments do at the same time. So I think we're a staff of seven. Um, I'm the communications person, which was sort of a nice bridge from my previous work to sort of what my master's was. So a couple of years ago, I got my master's in public policy. Um, so it was kind of a career shift from communications. My undergraduate degree was um, in communications with the focus on film. I thought I was going to make documentary films, uh, maybe some narrative films. I ended up in radio, uh, worked there for like seven years, um, and then got my master's in public policy. Now I'm trying to enter um, sort of the, the government world. Some of like my you know, social media skills I learned in radio. Um, so a lot of my filmmaking, so like they've never had um, this much original video content because they've never had anyone that really did any of that. So a lot of that is being utilized these days. Um, and it's been good because it's like, you know, I get to utilize my old skills, but have my foot in the door into the, the sort of the new field that I want to get into. So I'll be in meeting with county commissioners, uh, Mayor Fry in Minneapolis. These days I'm meeting a lot with um, the commissioner of the Minneapolis Health Department, trying to help her with COVID-19 stuff. Um, so it's been interesting. It's sort of a new world that I have to learn, but it's, I think it's a really good starting point for me. Yeah, I get the impression that you're a person that really enjoys learning and doing new things. So it sounds like I do. really exciting. It's scary though. I, I think, you know, I think people sort of conflate my joy and um, I get so excited when I get to like new, meet, meet new people and like learn things from them and hear their stories. So I think people conflate like, that wanting to connect with people with like confidence, but like I'm very insecure. I'm like so not confident. I just swim in doubt all the time. And so like my last two supervisors have like told me like, oh, like you're very like even and um, you approach things with confidence. And I was like, no, I, if only you could like see under the hood and like 
see me like right before I go to bed as I lay in bed and like think about all the things I messed up that day. I mean, fake it till you make it, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, one of my friends is writing her dissertation about wellness for musicians. And that's a lot of physical wellness because that's something that has been largely ignored in our field, but also mental and emotional wellness. And this might be I don't know, just a helpful little tidbit for you, but one of the things she said recently on her social media was to schedule worry time. And because there are a million things that come up throughout the day that are like, oh, I can't believe I did that or that happened or what about this in the future? Like all that stuff. Her advice was to just write down everything or like a little note in a notebook and then give yourself 20 minutes just to like let it all happen. And so you have that time, but other times you're not letting that be more prevalent. And she did mention like, maybe don't do it right before bed. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's tough. You know, sometimes I'm, I find myself like rolling around for three hours. I'm just like, well, you know, eight hours of sleep just turned into five. Uh, but that's actually like <laughs> one of the hardest things about the COVID-19 quarantine is like, you know, so many times I like, I go out and I meet with friends and that gives me an opportunity to think out loud. Sometimes I haven't fully processed my own feelings and my own thoughts, but having the ability to say it out loud and having someone listen and sometimes people telling me, pump the brakes on that, man, like you are way off base or someone like, you know, like giving me some feedback and they say like, hey, I get where you're coming from. Um, like that, that's what I miss a lot right now. Yeah, I feel that. And just like being in person with people, that's <laughs> like such a basic thing to say, but it's true. And we were talking while I was trying to figure out this recording stuff online before, and I am teaching online, but it's, I love making music with my students. It's so important for them for so many different pedagogical reasons but you know it's important for me to be able to connect with them in that way and i just i can't right now yeah it's tough you know it's one thing if it's just like talking back and forth but like you have to like listen to like the nuances of an instrument and all of that too so it's just like i don't know how you pick that up over like a microphone oh you don't <laughs> okay <laughs> yeah I had um, this one student who has this big, beautiful, lovely sound, but as soon as he starts his long tones, the sound just cuts like to a quarter of what it was. And I'm like, well, cool. I guess I just get to look at your bow hand and make sure everything's working all right. <laughs> in that yeah, this is tough. You prefaced with like being in the same room with someone sounds so basic, but like this is this whole thing has given us an opportunity to sort of reevaluate things that we consider basic and take granted from day to day. Um, so like it's, it's partially an awakening too. Oh, totally. I've been trying to slow my life down for years and years. And I think finally our society is realizing like it's okay to slow down a little bit. And I hope that's a trend that continues after this. I totally agree. Can I ask you two things that you brought up real quick about the health, the physical and mental health of musicians? Yeah. Do you have instances being a musician where you've seen parts of your physical health break down and then um, but you seem to me like a very even keeled, happy person. And so I don't want to dig too much into your mental health either unless you're willing to share. Um, but are you able to like sort of see those two things in your life? <laughs> that's a big question. <laughs> Um, I have experienced a lot of pain, like physical pain, um, from my playing, uh, long story short, growing up, I stood playing the violin and I still do when I practice, but then when we sit in orchestra, it's a totally different posture game. It really shouldn't be, but it's something that I don't practice as much. So when I 
I have a lot of orchestra rehearsals. Sometimes I get like a lot of pain in my back or my shoulders. One time, instead of going to the doctor and seeing if I needed pain pills, I just took a lot of ibuprofen and boy, was that a mistake. <laughs> but it's just, it's being aware and, you know, we have to treat ourselves like athletes because the small muscle groups are actually even more prone to injury than the large muscle groups. Yeah, yeah. There's that, uh, the mental health thing. I mean, like everyone, it's a work in progress on a like standard level with like life and friends and family and all that stuff. Like I, I, I feel like I'm in a really good place, but auditions can be mentally, mentally and emotionally exhausting. The comparing game is really hard. Uh, the gossip game is strong. That's something I'm trying to do less of in 2020. We all work hard and winning an audition is mostly hard work, but when everyone's working really hard, it really comes down to luck or a personal connection. <laughs> Yeah, I totally hear that. Yeah, that's great. I love the, I, I mean, two things stuck out for me, your comparison to athletes when it comes to the physicality of sports, like you're training certain muscles over and over. Um, and sometimes that takes its toll. Um, mm -hmm. And then like, you know, your perspective on the mental health aspect, like we all go through ups and downs. Like you don't have to be a musician to compare yourself at work or in real life. Um, and so it's something yeah. we all work on. So yeah, it puts it into perspective. Right as I had the idea for this last summer, I was sitting with my best friend, Brianne, when you texted her asking about the podcast. And she was like, hey, want to be on Men's Podcast? And I was like, sure. So, <laughs> yep, um, that's, the right, that's the right response. <laughs> um, so first off, thank you again for having me on your podcast. This is something I meant to ask you in the moment, but we got so into you know other stuff. Where did the idea come from? What does the name mean? Yeah. Well, first, I want to thank you also for coming on. I didn't know you guys were right next to each other when the proposal sort of started. I'm really glad you guys came on. That's one of my favorite episodes because the conversation felt so natural. So thank you for coming on and making yeah, it a great episode. Uh, but to answer your question about um, how did it start? What does the name mean? I'll start with the name because that one's really easy and kind of stupid, but back in high school, um, some friends and I started a, a rock band. It took us forever to pick a name. Um, one of my friends like did some like random name generator online, came up with something stupid. So we were like that for like a couple of days. Um, and then one day, like we like had like a band meeting and we're like, today's the day we decide our band name. And like, we were, we were arguing for a while. No one came up with something that like, everyone was like, oh, I love it. And so like, I looked down and my dad is like, uh, he's an HVAC tech. And so he gave me a, a, a hoodie and it said like, um, it said quality pressure or something like right on, right on the breast. And so I looked down and I saw it and I was like, dude, was like, what if we're quality under pressure? And for some reason, everyone <laughs> loved it. I was like, no, like it was a joke, you idiots. And so that stuck. And so um, Dawson, one of my co-hosts on the Quality Under Pressure podcast, when we were beginning to start that podcast, um, we had the same sort of experience. We we're like, oh, like, what should we do for names? And like, and so he's like, let's just call it the Quality Under Pressure. And like, again, I was just kind of like, no, but just like, whatever. Like, I don't really care at this point. Like, I thought, you know, too, the podcast was going to be like, 10 episodes and we were going to be like oh that was fun and then like kind of quit doing it but it's kind of stuck on and I, I really love doing it 
the the concept and idea that one actually took maybe like a year um so my friend dawson wanted to start a podcast and we were like casually talking about it i was pretty late to like the podcast game in terms of listening to podcasts you know one day i was on a road trip and i was just like I don't know if I want to listen to music for six hours. So I mixed in some podcasts and I listened to Radio Lab and Revisionist History and the oh, storytelling. Radio Lab is so good. And then like the more I explored, the more I realized like the podcast world is super saturated. Not all of them are as good as Radio Lab. Um, <laughs> yeah, and so then like that made reach. me, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm glad I started there though. Yeah. Um, and so then I started thinking about it and like, you know, I, I, I kind of wanted to do something and like give back to like the podcast world because it still kind of feels like, you know, we're just a bunch of pirates in like the audio world, like trying to figure it out and like carve out space for ourselves and stuff like that. And so then, you know, I talked to my friend a little bit more and it just sort of, we were, we were stalling on ideas. But I realized, you know, I would have these just sort of free-formed conversations for hours with friends over like a beer or a coffee or a lot of times at like bonfires. Um, and those are like my favorite things to do. And so there were so many times where, you know, I would say out loud like, man, if only we had recorded that conversation, I could just like listen back and like revisit all the things that we talked about. So like one day just those two concepts just kind of came together. And so I pitched it and they were like, let's do it. We recorded ourselves the first couple of times. It felt right. And now we're 68 episodes deep and after two years. And so it's been a lot of fun. That's incredible. So back to quarantine, but then away from quarantine. Are you ready? Okay. Yes. After the quarantine is done, what is the first restaurant that you want to go to? Oh man, that's a great question. I guess like so many times, even like before all of this happened, it was so i feel like this is a cop-out but there's so many times where like the location matters far less than the people that come ah oh, what's the restaurant that you and i went to that one time with brianne and michael blue door pub yes and so like even when we were beginning to organize like hey let's hang out in the coming weeks that restaurant popped into my mind and that's why i pitched that because um some of my close friends have gone down there and just had a really fun time but I, again i really don't care we could go to a brewery we could go to caribou coffee I just want to be in the same space with people. Yeah. Totally. I'll go anywhere when this is done though. Uh, right. <laughs> what is your favorite meal? I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a really good cook. Um, I really only know a couple dishes. I can make a pretty decent like curry and rice. Oh yeah. It's weird saying I know how to make tacos, but like, <laughs> I can still, like everyone has like a different way they make tacos and I make, <laughs> make it a certain way. Favorite meal. I feel like I can do, like a cheeseburger and fries and like a soda any day um but also like again it's basic but pizza like oh, I can't love pizza so much can't really mess up pizza and even like my pizza like doesn't even have to be fancy like legit like I'll I'll throw down on like Domino's or something but like you know when we go to fancy places too it's just like I I can throw it down on this. I feel a little weird buying like $15 pizzas, knowing that I could have just had one for like $7.99 or something, but <laughs> I'm cool with it. Half the qualities there. Uh, what is your go-to drink? That's an interesting question too, because um, prior to COVID-19, I've never drank alone. I just only drink for social reasons, but I have been drinking alone for better or for worse, probably for worse. And I don't get too fancy. Like when we go out, it's cool to sort of explore cocktails because I don't know how to make them. But like anything, like just a whiskey, Coke, whiskey, ginger, whiskey, sour, that's usually what I get when I go out. So 
What kind of whiskey? Uh, it don't matter. If it'll get a little buzz going and make the night a little more loose. Because again, I'm uptight. And so like, whatever, whatever it takes. Okay, so when this is over and I'm still doing the podcast, we'll do one in person and I will make you a cocktail. Yes, thank you. What's your like, so what's the cocktail that you feel most confident making? I mean, really anything. Uh, I worked at a craft bar, so some of those, oof, we had one drink that I swear had seven different whiskeys in it. And like, I had all that stuff memorized. Yeah, there's not really anything that scares me, except egg white drinks get really messy. So I'll do them because they're good, but... Oh, I'm so down. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what are you drinking right now? Ah, okay. So in preparation for the podcast, I know the logo has wine. So I prepared a little bit of wine in a plastic cup. <laughs> so classy. So, so classy because uh, I grabbed, so I grabbed a cup for my uh, Jack Daniels and Coke. Um, and okay. then I was just like, how oh. many drinks do you have in front of you right now? Just a two and water. Okay. I saw something else. <laughs> no. So I have the, the whiskey and Coke. Um, cause again, like it's easy and it's sort of what I enjoy. And so this was like my first choice, but then I was just like, oh, I got to have some wine for the podcast, but I only had grabbed one cup. Um, but I had these, uh, leftover from a party and they were right next to me. So I was just like, oh, okay, cool. So, uh, in, in my plastic cup, I have Merlot. <laughs> so that's another thing that I do when I actually do like order wine at like restaurants and stuff, I'll slaughter the pronunciation <laughs> and to like the, watch the servers like, okay, I'm gonna let this pass. Like this guy <laughs> just doesn't know. Are you drinking anything? I am. Tonight, I will be drinking champagne and chambord. Whoa. Champagne board pain. A champagne is so cute looking. Yeah, okay, so I also wanted to talk about different bottle sizes. This is called a split. And it's one serving of sparkling wine, 187.5 milliliters compared to a typical bottle of wine is 750 milliliters. But I just wanted to show you the size chart that I have in this book. Split is the smallest, but it goes up. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah. That's the, the smallest? That's the smallest. And a standard bottle of wine is the fourth one in. What is that last one? I know, it's huge. The Nebuchadnezzar. <laughs> Yeah, it is. It is 15 liters and it is the equivalent of 20 standard bottles of wine. That's uh, out of control. <laughs> I know. You think if I went to a wine store, I was like, give me the big bottle. They would get an attitude like people at Starbucks. It's a Bente. It's a <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar. <laughs> so the split is great because um, there are ways to close up sparkling wine bottles, but I feel like if you leave it overnight, it doesn't really ever stay. But then also, you'll get to see. <laughs> you just take this part off, and then it's a twist-off cap instead of the super terrifying cork. Yes, that is really nice. I remember when I was much younger, like one of the first times like a girl asked me to open up some wine for her. God, I can't look stupid in front of her. Man, that did not go well. <laughs> yeah, that's terrifying. But yeah, so Chambord and Champagne. Oh, Chambord is a raspberry liqueur. So just adding a little bit more sweetness and a different kind of flavor to my, my bubbly. I like that. It's weird because, you know, I say like I like like whiskey and Coke or something like that. But when I do get cocktails, 
I like the sweet ones. And so like being a guy, like imagine like all my friends making fun of me every time I order a cocktail, but I don't care if it's whatever, it's good. Yeah, you, you drink what you like. Um, I also yeah. never tried Chambord on its own and it smells like cough syrup. So I poured this little shot glass of it. So you get to have my genuine reaction. Oh that. yes. Here we go. Do it. Good form. It tastes a lot better than it smells. You had a second there where, uh, like, it was like 0.3 seconds worth of time where you look slightly disappointed. Like one eyebrow went up, <laughs> and like you look slight. But it, overall, a good experience. <laughs> I'm glad. Glad to share that with you. But also, I was kind of hoping to hate it. Ah, oh, maybe that's what that was then. But I didn't. Yeah, that's probably what it was. Uh, so we did talk about music a little bit already. You mentioned that you had a band with your friends and you used to work in radio. This is probably a shorter answer, so I'll ask first and then follow up. Uh, what was the last concert you went to? And then can you tell me a little bit about your musical experience? Um, I'm trying to think of the last concert that I went to. Oh, I do know. Uh, I got tickets um, to go see the sister rock band um they're called megan dia um and they kind of came up in the same scene so i came from like the the warp tour punk emo rock hardcore scene and i still like you think it's a phase like so many people are like mom like this is not a phase but like it is <laughs> and by like the time that they're 23 like they're on to like listening to like miley cyrus or whatever but like i just never grew out of it and so i'm partially i'm happy because i knew i wasn't faking it like that's the stuff that I truly love and that's fine. Like I'll be listening to like metal and hardcore until I'm 50. Um, so I saw this band, they're, Medic and Dia are not hardcore. They, they're a rock band, but like sometimes folk, more folky and all of that. Um, but I had been a fan of theirs for a long time. Um, they only recently came back together after like an eight year hiatus. So I reached out to them and I was like, hey, I would love to um, come to your show and do like a review of it on the radio station. So they got me in and I got oh, to meet nice. them. And so many times, you know, it's just like, oh, it's hi and bye. Like, thanks for getting me into the show. Um, and it's sort of professional. They were so nice and warm. Um, and I'm sure you've had experiences like that too, where you get to meet some people that you really enjoy as artists. And so that just makes it so much more special. The, sh the show itself was really great, um, but it's just extra special when you realize like, oh, I'm a fan of this person, but they're really nice people too. Yeah, that is really nice. It's like when you get to meet your heroes and it doesn't suck. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. As far as my musical experience, uh, my parents tried to make me play piano when I was like in fourth grade um, and I was not about it. <laughs> I wish I would have learned it. And then we moved um, school districts between sixth and seventh grade which was kind of bad timing because um, when I entered middle school, everyone had sort of gotten their foundational lessons in the sixth grade. And so I missed that. I switched school districts and thought like, oh, okay, like I can be in band. And so I wanted to play the saxophone, um, but I had to take lessons over a summer. Um, so I had to condense sort of like nine months of um, learning an instrument in school into a three month private lesson system. So I did that and then um, I had like a performance test and they're like, okay, like you should be good enough to come into the band. So I learned the saxophone from seventh grade till 11th grade. Um, I swapped out band in 12th grade for a computer class. Again, I wish I would have done that final year. Actually, I don't regret it because that computer class was super valuable, but I was like looking for any excuse to drop band. I don't know why. I'm sure I, like 
at the time, it probably would have made sense. I hated it, but when I look back, um, and so I wish I would have kept up on it. In graduate school, however, in my final semester, I had worked ahead, and so I had a lot more free time, and so um, like every credit after eight was free, so I took a piano course and um, learned some basic um, piano. Oh, nice. Yeah, so I know notes. I can like see it and like know notes and like I could identify a treble clef and all that, but it's just, I just haven't been around um, like classical music for a long time. And so a lot of that has gone away, but I can dabble, I guess. Yeah. Have you ever been to an orchestra concert? Yep, a couple of times by choice. And then once by, cause I, I had to do it for that piano class. Um, okay. I had to go to some, um, oh no, I chose to go to a piano recital actually for that class. It was my teachers and it was, he was so good, man. Just the, like the dynamics, like when, and like the articulate, like the force that he struck some chord. Like, I don't even think I could strike a piano with that much force even if I just like wound up and like just slammed my fist on the piano, but like he did it with like precision and like he meant to do it and like he barely had to raise his wrist off the keys. And I'm just like, how do you make that much noise and go at that speed and like do it from like memory? I was just like, I was so impressed. Yeah. Yeah. The piano department at the U of M is really, really, really good. Like if you would have to, you would have to see it in person. Like you couldn't listen to a recording of it and get the same experience. You had to see it in person to feel the force of those really loud, impactful uh, notes. And so like having that experience made me appreciate it. I mean, not that I didn't have an appreciation, like I played in band, I got a sense of it, um, but to see it from someone that has dedicated their life to that instrument, um, that was pretty special. Yeah, it's, it's so cool that your classical concert wasn't just like a concert, it was a recital with one person. Mm -hmm. I think that's sometimes even more impactful than seeing a whole group play. That's and true, yeah. Speaking of concerts, let's talk about some Beethoven 9. Excellent. So I have two prior episodes of the podcast that talk about Beethoven's music. I did an episode about Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, which is as one, da 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 da. Da, 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 da. You hear it everywhere. And then <laughs> I did another episode called Woo! Beethoven because he has all of these uncategorized works that are uh, abbreviated Worka Ona Opus. Big W, little O, big O. So we call them Woo numbers. <laughs> yeah, so we're not going to dive super deep into Beethoven, but we will talk about the symphony because it has a history that's kind of unique to itself. And actually today we are premiering with the first three movements of Beethoven's symphony, but the one that makes it truly stand out as a symphony is the fourth movement. And there's enough in there for it to be its own episode. So that will be the season finale on, I think it's September 8th. So you get your introduction here and you just got to wait until we're probably out of quarantine for the finale. That's great producing. The cliffhanger is so real right now. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, premiered in 1824. So it's only, you know, a 200 year old cliffhanger. <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> Spoiler alert. So yes, feel free to listen to the whole thing on your own time, but I will be sharing my thoughts and my favorite parts of the symphony with um, a friend of mine who plays the viola. So I got my information from here, the Chicago Symphony Program notes by Philip Huescher. And then, so I really liked this from InMozartsFootsteps.com. What is so special about Beethoven's Ninth Symphony? 
The symphony was remarkable for several reasons. It was longer and more complex than any, any symphony to date and required a larger orchestra. But the most unique feature of the ninth was that Beethoven included chorus and vocal soloists in the final movement. He was the first major composer to do this in a symphony. So that's like kind of the long and short of it. And we will get into a big change that he made that like would have knocked people out of their seats in 1824, but we'll, we'll come up on that later. Okay, so anyway, Ludwig von Beethoven was born December 16th in 1770 in Bonn, Germany, and died March 26, 1827 in Vienna, Austria. In his ninth symphony, his last symphony that he wrote, uh, so he began writing this in 1822, uh, like more seriously writing it in 1822, and he completed it in February of 1824. It was performed for the first time on May 7th in 1824 in Vienna. And at this point, Beethoven was almost completely deaf. The score calls for, get ready, um, soprano, alto, tenor, and bass soloists, and mixed chorus, and those are for the finale only, and an orchestra consisting of two flutes and piccolo, two oboes, two clarinets, two bassoons, and contrabassoon, four horns, two trumpets, three trombones, timpani, triangle, cymbals, bass, drums, and strings. I'm just thinking about as you're talking about all the instruments that went through that are uh, that were involved in this like those instruments at that time instruments are not cheap even today mm -mm. like i can't imagine what the cost of like creating this must have been do you have any sense of that oh we'll get to that later okay perfect and then <laughs> if i can ask you too um, maybe you've covered it in a previous episode, but for like the lay person, yeah. when we say symphony, symphony and a, a movement in in the symphony, mm -hmm. like what does that mean? Like I think I think I get it in a, like mm -hmm. a really general sense, but sometimes I love hearing people that are deep in a world dig into the details of a definition. So I like to think of it as an album that a band would put out, where all of the songs coordinate with each other in some way. Like you're telling one cohesive story. Um, a symphony is typically four movements. Some of them are a little longer, so they're, the movements themselves are going to be longer than each track on an album. But I like to think of it as a well-crafted album. There are elements from one movement that might come back in another, like in Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, he starts with da-da-da-da, and then in a later movement, the French horn has this antiphonal thing going on that's so it, like it brings you back to the beginning of the very first movement. Yep, yep. We'll dive into this more later, but usually the first movement is fast, the second movement is slow, and then you'll have a scherzo, and then you'll have a fast finale. And sometimes the first movement has like a slow introduction and then it gets faster later, but there are tempo variances in the, like the ballad versus the like song for the club. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Do people ever, is there other terms that people interchange that are misused? I'm thinking about um, in the film world, like when someone says like, oh, I love that scene. Like everyone kind of gets what they're saying. Like there's like sort of a, like the whole movie at large, but within the movie, there are sort of, you can break it up into sections and sort of mm -hmm. themes and, and stuff that way, or like, you know, like a three arc um, scenario in a movie. But like oftentimes when people say like, I love that scene, 
they actually mean I love that sequence when you like actually get into like filmmaking. Okay. Um, and so do people ever like misuse or interchange terms that aren't correct when they're talking about like symphony or movement or whatever other terms that may exist? I think probably the biggest misconception is that a lot of symphonies are only one movement. For example, the first time I played Beethoven's Fifth Symphony was in youth orchestra and we only played the first movement. And it was to my great surprise when we got to the end and on the next page, there was more. I was like, I didn't know this wasn't it. <laughs> yeah, that helps. That made me think, and I kind of understand like the psychological barrier, like you almost treat it like a symphony as like a song today. Like, mm -hmm. oh, okay, the song's over, but the movement is over, the symphony yes. continues. Yeah, so like some of my favorite albums, like uh, a band I really like is Panic at the Disco. And I like how they're, their albums tend to be a little bit more like musical, not music musical, but like Broadway musical influenced. There's a little bit of a theater element to them. So you can kind of feel a cohesive story throughout everything, even though they don't do the same things always that um, you'll find in the symphony where there are recurring musical themes or elements or things like that. Totally. That makes sense. Especially, I'm glad you related to that band because Panic of the Disco is also like one of those Warped Tour bands. So I totally get what you're saying. Yeah, I love them. So there's a massive group for the symphony. Yeah. And it's massively long. The entire symphony is about 72 minutes long. That's unusual. Yes. Okay. It's very unusual. I've played this three times, but it's like back to your earlier question, it's still such a production to put together that it's not done as often as I think people would like to. That um, makes sense. And the first time I played it, it was the only piece on the program. The second time I played it, it was, we had a couple pieces before intermission and then we made people sit there for 72 minutes. <laughs> the second half. <laughs> yeah, but it's 72 minutes of this is worth it, in my opinion. Yeah, right? also that point about, you know, I think you said earlier, this is the first time that someone brought in like a chorus mm -hmm. to a symphony and like, and he put it in the finale. I'm just thinking about like how momentous that might have been. Like this is like every finale, I think people try to make big and grandiose. But like the fact that he brought something new, but also like I'm thinking about like how people, how resistant people are to change these days. Like I'm sure maybe some people, I'm wondering if people are like, oh, that is disgusting that he would bring like human voices into this. Oh, well, We'll not get to specifically that, but we'll get to the, the reviews. So in 1824, Beethoven was almost completely deaf. He had given up playing piano in public and he did conduct the symphony at its premiere. Um, and <laughs> this is great. And did indeed appear to beat time and turn the pages of his score. And according to some accounts, even engage in some over the top theatrical gesturing. The players- What does that mean? <laughs> like, you know how conductors are like, oh, okay. <laughs> what I'm doing right now does not translate to podcasting, but I'm glad you got to see it. <laughs> yes, enjoy my laughing. <laughs> uh, the players and the singers had been cautioned beforehand to pay no attention to him. Instead, they all followed the discreet, utterly reliable beat provided by Michael Umlauf, the concertmaster. So they're all following the concertmaster. So at the end of the symphony, uh, one of the most famous accounts in all of music, the audience burst into applause. Some say it was at the end of the scherzo, others at the end of the symphony, but Beethoven couldn't hear the ovation. 
He stood with his back to the crowd, leafing through the score. So can you imagine the piece is over and he's just like, (laughs) (laughs) Only when the contralto soloist, Carolyn Unger, tapped him on the shoulder and turned him around did he see his public applauding wildly. In truth, it must have been a miserable performance, hastily prepared under the composer's sadly compromised direction for a public which can't reasonably have been expected to fully grasp what they were hearing. The reviews were mixed. The The necessary (laughs) differentiation of light and dark, security of of intonation, fine shading, and nuance of execution were all lacking, wrote one critic. Back in the day, the critics were so mean. They were so mean, but it's really funny to read these reviews. I appreciate that though, man. I think people are too lenient these days. And so like, it's great. And then I go see a movie. I'm like, was it though? Another critic just said, weak players. <laughs> wow, it was Trump. Oh wait, I didn't, I didn't read the full sentence. <laughs> but that would be a great review, weak players. <laughs> weak players. Uh, weak players, another reported, set down their bows and sat out so many measures. Oh, and in the finale, when the sopranos couldn't reach the high notes, they simply didn't sing. It is surprising that the piece made an impression at all, but for at least one critic, the effect was indescribably great and magnific- magnificent. Yes. That's, that's me in my English. Well done, English. <laughs> there was a second performance um, 16 days later. It was less successful. The house was barely half full, um, which they said was maybe due to the really nice weather outside. And ticket sales did not begin to cover expenses, which is also true now. I think most orchestras are funded by grants and donors. The work that Beethoven had written to surpass everything he already had accomplished in the field of the symphony, the work which he was determined to move mankind as never before, had failed him. For several years after Beethoven's death, his ninth symphony was considered too difficult to perform and, like we talked about, uh, too long to program easily. Although it won champions right from the start, it was not established in the repertory until the middle of the 19th century. Uh, Wagner was, Wagner is an opera guy, if you're unfamiliar, was a particularly staunch advocate. He even conducted it at a dedicatory concert for his Wagner-only, Festspielhaus. That is deep German. (laughs) I forgot you can see my screen. In 1872. From then on, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony has maintained its singular status as a cultural symbol of unsurpassed importance. And one of the challenges associated with it is not just the numbers or I mean, it's long, so it's hard to rehearse, too. There are rumors that Beethoven's metronome is different than ours. So he has actual numbers written out for how fast these things should go. I got this from Wikipedia. Conductors in the historically informed performance movement um, have used Beethoven's suggested tempos to mixed reviews. People have made cases for those metronome markings, both in writing and in performances. They they say that his tempos are too fast, that his metronome was somehow faster. Oh, which wow. obviously presents some <laughs> challenges. Um, the metronome still exists and was tested and found accurate, but the original heavy weight, whose position is vital to its accuracy, because I think it's it's not an electronic one or an app like a lot of people use today, but it's one of those ones right. where you like let the thing go and it like ticks yep. back and forth. Um, 
the original weight is missing and many musicians have attributed that to his really fast metronome markings. So, oh. um, and it's true. Some of this stuff, we'll get to this in the third movement. Some of this is standard core orchestra auditions and it's like some of those markings and like this doesn't even sound good at this tempo. So we're finally about to hear some music. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. Uh, so the first movement. There's something astonishing about a deaf composer choosing to open a symphony with music that reveals, like no other music before it, the very essence of sound emerging from silence. It is a master stroke, to be sure, but for Beethoven, it must, have, must also have been both painful and cathartic. The famous pianissimo opening, 16 measures with no secure sense of key or rhythm, does not so much depict the journey from darkness to light or from chaos to order, as the birth of sound itself or the creation of a musical idea. It is as if the challenges of Beethoven's daily existence, the struggle to compose music, his difficulty in communicating, the frustration of remembering what it was like to hear, have been made real in a single page of music. That was written by Philip Huescher. It was, it was really cool. It was really cool. It, it, speaking of like, you know, you, sometimes you have to experience music live. You have to be in the room to appreciate, appreciate it 100%. Um, that made me think that what we just listened to made me think like that probably was especially true for the, the portion that we just listened to. Yeah, it's so hard to hear at the beginning. And if you ever get a chance to hear it in a place like Orchestra Hall, where really quiet dynamics um, project really well in no, no matter what seat you're sitting in. It's something that's just so magical because I would bet that you weren't really able to hear the very beginning of it. No, especially through like this remote setup too. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I was like really trying to focus. Um, but again, like that made me appreciate it even more, just understanding how modern day music works with like all the compression. Mm -hmm. um, and so like you just don't get that range. Um, so, so that's something you have to appreciate about classical music. For sure. Yeah. And there's, oh man, I used to get so annoyed when my teachers would ask me for more dynamics, but they're the most magical part of classical music. Yeah. And especially when you play it too, I, that's, I, I felt the same way when I would play saxophone because like how much my embouchure had to change, how much my breathing had to change. And so like once you sort of tap into and you know how to play something, really soft but to be able to control the sound i felt like the the like forte was a lot easier fortissimo was a lot easier than playing something really quiet um that took a lot more skill to 
like I think at least. It's exhausting to play quiet. It's exhausting it to play slow. And it's something that you just don't expect. I agree. Um, so if you had to put a mood to that opening, what would you say? Ooh, it definitely felt like it could wake me up. Like a part of me thought like, ooh, <laughs> that could be like my morning alarm. But I don't think I would want to wake up to that. My, my, my morning alarm right now is very soothing. You kind of hear like birds chirping in the background. I kind of like that. But I don't know, maybe some people like, like I'm also not a person that loves jumping from the sauna into like an ice bath. But oh, some no. people do love that. This is like waking up that style. <laughs> I need something loud just to like shake me out of my dreams. <laughs> oh no, I don't need that. I'll be cranky. I recently actually, like just last week, overslept while my alarm was going off for like 20 minutes because it was in my dream. And in my dream, I was figuring out how to turn this annoying sound off. Wow. Yeah. That's inception level stuff right there <laughs> so you would say this is not calm no i mean it, i mean it starts that way um at least from the the portion that i could hear where like you think it could be soothing but like being given that background too um or how that reviewer reviewer at least sensed it where you know you appreciate that the composer is deaf and then mm -hmm. this just sort of like full force army comes at you it makes sense why that person thought that yeah, it's maybe like, this is what Beethoven would wish could happen to his ears. Like it's all muffled and then it explodes and he's like, I can hear sound again. Yeah. I think of it as a little dark, a little yes. bit brooding, but not too much. It's mysterious too. I read somewhere that someone compared it to the orchestra tuning at the beginning of a concert. It's like, you don't know what's gonna happen next, but would you like to know what happens next? Oh yeah, is that where we're going? That's where we're going. Segway. <laughs> Sometimes I'm good at those. Um, <laughs> so here's what happens after that. So that's that's immediately after what we just listened to yeah it's like only a couple minutes in so like it comes back down again <laughs> yeah I, I mean i mean in terms of intensity yes well and dynamically yeah. but you know since you mentioned your alarm with birds chirping that's what that sounds like to me oh a lot closer yeah just the, the what we listened to there i listened to a part of it with my eyes closed and you know i almost saw people dancing sort of waltz mm -hmm. style I don't know, maybe just because like I'm trying to like think of like Beethoven and I and I see his face and the type of clothes that he wears too. So I almost think of like people in like fancy dresses that have big bottoms and like they're dancing and waltzing and things like that. But yeah, that that I mean that I'm I listen to intense music, so the first excerpt that we listened to didn't bother me, but the mm -hmm. second one was definitely very peaceful. Yeah, way more peaceful than the beginning. I think that the beginning doesn't sound as intense to a lot of people now, but back in the day, that's like not what people were used to at all. Mm. So yeah, in, in just a couple minutes, it totally changes. 
I picked one more excerpt from the first movement. I don't quite remember what I picked here, so. Oh, nice. Okay, excellent. We'll explore together. So we'll see what this is. very well on my laptop. I think if people are listening with better headphones or a better speaker, and I am quite certain that it did not come across on your end um, <laughs> because your quality is even lower than mine, unfortunately. But what's going on when the flutes are going, the cellos have this really cool thing where they're going, boom, ba-dum, ba-dum, ba-dum. And it's just like, it's kind of back to that cheerful second excerpt that we heard, but you heard right at the beginning that it was coming out of that drama that you heard at the very opening of the movement again. So this whole thing yeah. is just a juxtaposition of those two moves. For sure, yeah. I mean, I wish I could, um, even the part that you brought out, the da 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 like when, I, when it first kicked in on my end, because of the remote setup that we have here and the quality that it's coming in, I, I wasn't able to tell right away if it was a wind instrument or a string instrument um, oh, later on, I, it made a little bit more sense. Like I said, like, I just can't tell the timbre of certain sounds yeah, um, through this, but it, like, it made me appreciate the articulation a little bit more and um, just the playfulness, like the bounce that it had. Yeah, um, playful so and that, bouncy, I like that. That was a cool comparison to, again, like if we tie it back to the first excerpt where it's really intense and it kind of hits you and punches you, um, this one had a little more finesse and a little more playfulness. Speaking of punching, let's move to the second movement. So Excellent. The second movement, to everyone's surprise, was the scherzo movement. Uh, scherzo translates to joke, and usually the scherzo is something in three, so like one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two. Three. This is written in three, four, so the rhythm is da, 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 da. But if you know this piece, you know it does not go at that speed.
repeats back to the beginning. Mm. But at that time, that... people were expecting the slow movie. Oh, really? And they get da 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 da. <laughs> yeah, like yeah. a punch in the face from the orchestra. Yeah, for sure. That's interesting. The the that first part that we got, I feel like that that's pretty well known, right? Just the just the beginning of the excerpt that we listened to. I think so, but I think it's not as well known as some of the other things. Like people maybe don't attribute it to Beethoven. Also, the fourth movement is famous because it's the Ode to Joy. Okay, I hear what you're saying too. I don't think people attribute it to Beethoven. I think it's because people have heard that first, the first like, that did it, that did it so many times. Like they know it, they don't know necessarily who composed it. It's weird, that made me think of like, you know, how we take a piece like this and we've sort of used it to mean something else in like 2020 or, you know, modern times. Um, that I feel like I've heard that song and like, so many like financial or like insurance commercials or whatever <laughs> because it has like an air of like i don't know when people think of classical music just like a, a weird sense of like um royalty because it's like you know like the the lower class didn't necessarily get to enjoy music like this at that mm -hmm. period um and so but it has an intensity that like the i feel like is the ethos of like the financial market but like the elegance and the high class vibe that they also try to exude and so i just feel like when i heard that and being conditioned as a person in 2020 it's 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 weird how my mind painted that imagery yeah that's an image i haven't gotten on the podcast before is that sounds like the financial business yeah good you have much better people on the <laughs> podcast before the table I'm sorry. I'm sorry, music world. <laughs> no, it's okay. You didn't do it. You're just reporting back. That's right. I'm the messenger. <laughs> Something else that's groundbreaking is you hear the strings go at the beginning. Da -da -da, da -da -da, and then the instrument that immediately follows that is the timpani. Which is, the timpani is now, like, if you go to orchestra concerts, there are so many cool timpani moments. But that was unheard of in Beethoven's time. I think he had done it a few other times in earlier symphonies, but it's still like it wasn't a featured instrument hardly ever. So that was like timpani solo. So he's breaking new ground a couple of times, like how we learned, like, you know, he brought a chorus in and all of that. That makes me think, you know, how he got some, he had poor reviews. Do you think there's a sense, like even today, you know, when someone does something very new, um, there's sort of a, a resistance to people that are established um, in an industry. Do you think there's any sense of that happening here where he's like, oh, I'm going to try some new things and people are like, this sucks, but like, we appreciate it now, but people at the time maybe couldn't? Yeah, there's a radio show on classical NPR, and I can't remember which one it is, but it's the one that, or what it's called, but it's the one that plays new music. And their tagline is, just a reminder that all music was once new. And, you know, my favorite composers are all dead white German guys. And that's something that a lot of people in this industry are trying to change because there are, you know, people have been writing music all over the world and even outside of certain time periods. Like, I love the Romantic era, which is uh, Beethoven kind of bridged the gap from classical to Romantic. Like, all those other guys like Brahms, um, can't think of more right now. I'm a bad 
musician. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, there are, there's a certain period of time and um, also men were now thinking that some women actually wrote music but used their husband's name instead. I, where was I going with this? Just, we're trying to now uh, be more appreciative of living composers and new music. You know, it can be hard to do. Um, you mentioned that you love to discover new music. It's something that I don't like to do. Usually my first listen through of an album, I'm like uncomfortable in the way that I'm squirming. Like I just, I need a couple times before I can decide that I like something. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. That's not, yeah, I don't necessarily love things right away. I'm thinking of times like, you know, when I sort of discovered like a Bjork or a Sigur Rós, like how unusual what they do is, but then you let it sink in and then you come to realize like, this is transcendent. This is completely different. This is so extremely beautiful what they're doing. Um, and you feel really cool at first because you discovered something on your own. But yeah, it, I don't know. I, I just don't know what people can do. What's like when, when I think of, when I sit down now, I'm just like, it's done. It's all been said and done, but one day someone will figure out something. Um, and I just hope I don't have the reaction that maybe we're sort of imposing on these reviewers where I'm just like, nah, that's not real music. I just don't want to be that cranky person. The second movement is a scherzo. Surprise the crap out of everybody. He's breaking ground with the, the second movement being the scherzo, but he did not, he did not make this an entire party. There is a ballad, there's the slow movement. Tell me which Disney music movie, <laughs> which Disney movie you hear at the beginning of this. This is what opens the, the third movement. Was that Aladdin? Because I heard the. <laughs> I don't think that's how you pronounce that, but yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> I heard the. I don't remember the exact lyrics, but. I don't buy that. Yes! I don't buy that. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. Only they would. Listen? If only they looked closer, would they say? Ah, that's what it is. No, sorry. They find out there's so much more. To yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's what I but heard. But it's like, um, it starts riff raff, street rat, deer deer deer, and then it goes on to something yeah. else. Yeah. <laughs> wow, I love Aladdin. <laughs> <laughs> this is like what I do again, like when I do the wine orders, like I just love throwing people off. That's so cool. Have you seen the live action one? No, how is it? I haven't seen it either. Okay. I was hoping for a review. No, I haven't seen it. I haven't seen any of those live action ones. I just feel like it would just like break something in my childhood. And so I'm avoiding them for now. Okay, that's fair. Um, so it starts out with Riff Raff Street Rat. And um, it, <laughs> but don't sure. put it that way. Don't put it that way. It makes it, it, you're making it sound like Beethoven ripped off Aladdin. I am making it sound that way, yes. <laughs> I'm sure those are the lyrics he had in mind when he wrote the beginning of 
You're probably right. Yeah, we could Wikipedia it. <laughs> but then it goes into the theme for this movement, the do do do, um, which gets expanded on later. And this is the last excerpt until the finale of season two when you get to hear the fourth movement. Um, yes. I started this a little earlier. So there's a, an infamous orchestra excerpt for auditions uh, that you'll hear, but I started it a little early because I am a violinist. So of course, a lot of things featured on my podcast are the string moments. So I started it earlier than the excerpt actually starts because there's a really cool French horn moment. And I think French horn might be the coolest instrument that I don't play. Because obviously violin is number one, right? Yeah, Avi. Avi. Yeah. Um, okay, so here's a little French horn moment that goes into this orchestra excerpt that every professional violinist has probably spent like blood and tears on. Anyway, here we go. <laughs> starts with the and before that the first violins are going pluck 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 and going from we call that pizzicato um to bowed notes is like just a technical transition that's really challenging and i've had a couple orchestras ask for the excerpt to start at the pits which playing it entirely by yourself is like, well, I don't know how to make this sound good. That's some really cool insight. Like you just, like, you know, you just always kind of think like, if a piece of music is written, it can be performed seamlessly, but it's cool to hear like, that transition is actually really difficult. At least it is for me. Maybe it's easier for other people, but I feel like I've always like dropped the last pits and just hoped that my stand partner was playing it. <laughs> <laughs> I remember having those thoughts too when I was in band, like, oh, I'm going to skip this note, but like there's a, there's nine other saxophones that are going to play it. <laughs> yeah, um, that excerpt actually goes on. It's a really beautiful moment. Um, the entire thing is beautiful. The entire symphony is really, really great. You did say that you have listened to this. I cut you off earlier because so I was like, I want to talk about it on the podcast, and then I forgot. So No, I didn't listen to the whole thing, though, and okay. so... I'm actually like double bummed because now that I've gotten the context for the symphony and knowing that the the final shoot, not phrase, what is it? Movement. Movement. Ah, yes, terms is sort of groundbreaking and Beethoven sort of broke the rules a little bit and that, you know, this is kind of epic. Like I'm going to listen to it on my own, but it. um, it's kind of a, it's kind of a bummer that we don't get to do it on the show, but cliffhanger, like, wait till the season finale. I know. So I'm going to plug my favorite orchestra and dream job, the Minnesota Orchestra. They recorded all nine of Beethoven's symphonies. I think they finished this right before their lockout started in 2011 or 2012. I don't remember. But they have all nine symphonies recorded. 
and their recordings are amazing. They're an amazing orchestra. Osmo Vanska is an amazing conductor. Highly recommend those recordings. One of them at least won a Grammy. Oh my God. So if that's not that's really cool. enticing, yeah, that's, that's really I don't cool. Know what it is. Uh, that's one of the, before my, I saw my piano teacher do his recital, that's probably the last sort of orchestra performance that I saw uh, was the Minnesota Orchestra. Oh yeah, that's a good one. So any other thoughts about Beethoven other than you definitely want to listen now, which I hope everyone does? I always forget, like, you know, every time you get a Beethoven lesson, people always ultimately land on, you know, he was deaf, right? And so I always forget, that makes me think like, man, like, how is something like this even possible? And so it's just like, makes you appreciate it even more and makes you think like, you know, this truly has to come from the soul. Like so many times, you know, like I was saying, like when I was in high school and trying to make music with my friends, you know, I really didn't know what I was doing. So luckily like I wasn't completely tone deaf. And so like, I would listen to it and think like, oh, okay, that sounds like it makes sense. And like, keep it. And then like add something onto it. Like he, he didn't have that ability. And so it like truly had to come from like perfect understanding and from something in his core. Once you know that it just, I don't know, it just means more to me, I guess. Yeah, I totally agree. I wrote a Facebook status about this once. I was like, I just, I can't believe that Beethoven was deaf when he wrote this symphony. And I got a bunch of people responding like, well, you know, he understood the rules. And I was like, you're missing the point there. Yes. He never heard it the way that we hear it. It's like, a blind painter can understand like the blue is here and if I mix this much with whatever and my canvas is this big they will never see what they've created and like other people get to experience this beauty that this person never will or did yeah that but also makes me think maybe they they appreciated that piece of art in a different way I'm just thinking about you know all the different let's say frequencies that you can sort of obtain information from. And so, you know, people obtain or creatures obtain information about their environment, not always through vision, you know, sometimes it's through sound like sonically and stuff like that too. And so, um, you know, I'm not going, I'm not going that far, but I'm just saying, you know, maybe he had a different way of appreciating um, the beauty of the music that he, created and it was just different than ours and so the fact that you know we both had senses that could that could consume and intake what he created um but maybe we just had different sensors to appreciate it it's kind of a weird colliding of two worlds but mm -hmm. it's awesome that we can both appreciate it Thank you, Beethoven, for writing this amazing symphony. And thank you for being on my podcast. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. Like I said at the beginning, like, you know, this is such a weird time. It's um, time. Music has definitely been a crutch. Like, I've, ever since I've been a teenager, again, like, I listen to, like, weird emo music and stuff like that. And so ever since I've been a teenager, music has always been a crutch for me. Um, and so has been like having these remote conversations. And so thank you. Yeah, it's so good to talk to you. Okay, I have a couple wrap up questions. Oh, cool. Yeah, I'm gonna pick, I'm gonna pick just one. They're both about quarantine. I've been uh, thinking about it lately. Do you <laughs> have you? Uh, do you want the funny one or the helpful one? Uh, let's go funny. Let's go funny. funny? Okay. Yeah. Uh, what has been your weirdest quarantine activity so far? I don't know. That's weird. I've been trying really hard to sort of find a routine 
And like in that endeavor, I feel like I've been reaching for really normal things. So the first like weird thing that I thought like, I kind of caught myself like, why am I doing this? I was in the living room and I play basketball three times a week um, and I haven't been able to do that. So I found myself like just practicing basketball footwork <laughs> for no, no reason. I don't know what triggered it. Um, it's not like I was watching basketball on TV because like professional sports isn't happening or whatever, but like I just had a moment to myself and I don't think I was really like thinking about what was going through my brain, but like sort of when I came back online, I was like, why am I doing these like weird foot drills? I was like, this is embarrassing. I should stop. So that was like one time I caught myself doing something weird. And did you stop when you were like, this is embarrassing, I should stop? No, I kind of did it like two more times <laughs> while, while I was thinking about it. Yes. <laughs> well, thank you again. It was a really good time. Yeah, uh, I, I love talking with you. So thank you for inviting me. Cheers. Cheers. Clink. <laughs>